1: Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. In late May,
2: I spoke with Stephanie Kelly Romano, an associate professor of rhetoric, film, and screen studies at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. She has conducted research into alien abduction narratives, having collected stories from over 300 people who believe they have had abduction experiences and examining these accounts for common themes and what they can tell us about issues of control, rights, reality, identity, and power in our society. I'm Toby Ball and this is Strange Arrivals.
3: I am Stephanie Kelly Romano. I'm an Associate Professor of Rhetoric, Film, and Screen Studies at Bates College. And uh, for my dissertation research, I interviewed people who thought they had been abducted by aliens.
2: so what what kind of caused you to be interested in that particular subject?
3: Yeah, that's a question I get a lot. I became interested in this because truthfully, when I was in graduate school, I was watching The X-Files and I really liked The X-Files. And when you're in graduate school, you don't have a lot of extra time to do things that you like unless it's part of your research. Additionally, I didn't necessarily want to just look at speeches of like dead presidents. And so I started looking at the X Files and conspiracy rhetoric. And of course, there's the whole theme about the abduction and Mulder's sister. And so then I got interested in people who think they've been abducted or claim experiences with extraterrestrials and how do they carve out space for themselves and legitimacy, right? Like, how does that happen?
2: I found when I was doing this that there seems like there might be kind of a feedback loop in between the X Files and and the population <laughs> at large. Do, do, do you have that perception that, you know, the X-Files obviously uses, you know, the, the stuff that, that Bud Hopkins et al. have done to kind of create this narrative, but then all these people get to see it, and, and it seems like the uh, the instances of supposed abduction suddenly have an uptick.
3: Um, I, yeah, I don't know if there's any type of... Uh Correlation in terms of the uptick uh, and things like that. I do know that, like, even I think it was Martin Kottermeyer did an article about Barney Hill and that episode of The Outer Limits, the Bolero Shield, and whether or not there was a correlation or association there. So, like, the imprinting of cultural texts and the chicken or the egg argument, you know, like which came first, I don't know. Um, but I do know that with the X-Files, what's really interesting or the the piece that I really look at is, so in pop culture, we have certain characterizations of extraterrestrial experiences and experiencers, right? And we have them not only in the X-Files, but all kinds. People of Earth was a recent sitcom about an alien abduction support group that drew on those same tropes of abduction. What I find interesting is that people who claim experiences with extraterrestrials don't always have those same themes and tropes, but people who are interested in the phenomenon but don't have the experiences do. So general pop culture, like my students, when they come to my class and I say, what do you know about alien abduction? They tell me all the things that have been on the X-Files or in Steven Spielberg movies or whatever, but people who have had actual encounters have a tendency to be a little bit more distanced from that
2: why don't you tell me about this study that I guess formed the basis for your dissertation and then, um, several papers that I've read.
3: Right. So, so like I said, when I started this, I just, I wanted to study something in graduate school that I found interesting when you're getting work, when you're getting ready to do uh, doctoral work and to write a dissertation, you're going to be studying it for years, literally. Like this is going to be the beginning of my career and so uh, I thought this would be an interesting thing that would keep my attention. I had no idea. I had no idea how big it was. Um, I came to it very underinformed. And so... When I first started this, the questions that I asked people who thought they had had these experiences were very simple. They're they're open-ended narrative questions because I am a rhetorical scholar, so I study myth, I study narrative, I study the way that people use language to make sense of their lives and who they are, right? Their actual identity. So the questions were really open-ended because I just wanted people to talk about their experiences. And then I also went to some conferences. I went most notably to the uh, Leo Sprinkles Conference out in Wyoming because I did my graduate work in Kansas, so it was close by. Um, I also solicited people uh, on the internet. I, had, I was on various message boards. I got in touch with several different researchers and also um, therapists who work with populations of experiencers, and they would... Hand out the survey uh, anonymously. the 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 survey was anonymous, um, and they would hand it out, and then I would collect them. So after I first, I got my first wave back, I realized how many questions I also needed to ask. Right in addition, and several people were super good. I mean, amazing, amazing people in terms of answering my follow-up questions as I kind of learned what it was I needed to know in order to answer my research questions. So there were several people who would answer each time I would send out another query. um, And then the instrument grew little by little until I had a pretty decent instrument to capture kind of the experience and, and how people attributed it and what people thought of different aspects of it. Um, and then <clears throat> once I had all that, I mean, I have, I have hundreds, I have over 300 people now who claim experiences. And as you probably know, most people who have an experience have more than one. Most people that I've spoken with, or communicated with have been have had experiences since the time they were a young child over the course of their lives for many years. So each experiencer might have two, three, five, ten. 10 experiences that we have talked about or they've described to me of where of we're corresponded about um, so I have a humongous repository of information and then I just look at it with different questions over the years I've been doing this now for 25 years and so when different things happen oftentimes in the world I'll say, you know, how does this relate? How does this go on? And so, for example, right now, um, I just recently did a program about coronavirus conspiracies. And on it, we were kind of talking about how science can be used in order to prove non-scientific or pseudo-scientific things. Like how do methods of research and gathering information gain legitimacy? And it immediately made me think about Alien abduction discourse and uh, David Jacobs and John Mack and the various things that they say in order to kind of co-opt the discourse of scientific legitimacy while at the same time critiquing it right so it's it's this tension that goes on and so um, over the years I've just kind of looked at race or gender or implants or truth or whatever is interesting to me
2: when you're getting things back from people how much does the believability of the experience the the reality of the experience how important is that or is that just not important at all
3: you know truth is probably one of the biggest questions that i grapple with that constantly is underneath whatever questions we are asking of extraterrestrial existence experience interaction right um And I really like the distinction between something being true and something being real, right? So I do not know the truth of an experience, whether or not it empirically happened in this reality, in another reality. I I have no idea. I do not know. And that's not my area. I don't have the means by which to evaluate that. I do know that the criteria that I use is whether or not these people believe these experiences to be real. If they are real for them in the sense that they have consequence in their life, then I care about it, right? So it's very much similar to any type of faithful discourse. I I don't necessarily know if God is true, but for me personally, God is real, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that distinction is one that I make. It's very hard for me, and I try very much to avoid making any type of evaluations about which experiences are true. Because this is a phenomenon that we don't know things about. Um, And David Jacobs talks about it in the beginning of, um, I think it's Secret Life, where he talks about the fact that now he can kind of intuitively sense which accounts are true and are in line with other abduction narratives. But my problem is that as a culture, as a society, as people, we naturally fill in our stories so that they move toward other people there's this reciprocal thing that happens because we're building relationships and so that um that tendency to adhere is is something that i always think about in terms of truth is it true or is it not and so i just deal with what's real And if it's real for the people who claim to have the experience, then I include them. I also do do some kind of uh, cross-checking of narrative elements and consistency, right? Make sure Mm -hmm. that the the stories that they're telling me have coherence and fidelity insofar as they can remain consistent over time. Um, But of course, what that does is that then eliminates anyone who does not want to be contacted again, who wants to remain entirely anonymous. Or those people who don't contact me, right? And those, of course, are the people I want to talk to. People right. who have had experiences who don't tell anyone. Um, but it's it, it's hard because we only get, I only get people who are willing to come forward with their experience.
2: That's interesting. Um, so, So who's getting abducted? Mm. Well... Most of the work that
3: I did was in the early 2000s um, and um, at that point uh, you know uh, Thomas Bullard Eddie Bullard had done that huge store that huge um, study about abduction accounts um, Christopher Bader has also done a lot of work in terms of uh, religious studies as has Christopher Partridge and then I also did a piece for the journal of UFO studies and And my sample of experiencers was very similar to what other people's reports were kind of reflecting. And so while uh, in the past, it had seemed as though more women were being abducted, uh, the the kind of balance between men and women evened out. It seems as though it's just about equal now. Uh, My sample seemed to be made up of people who have a higher than average education or at least attend uh more school than average kind of census data but of course i'm collecting my data at abduction conferences and via the internet both of which require disposable income leisure time and a and a class privilege that also is correlated with educational attainment right right so um I think that um, I think that the the people anecdotally, I can tell you that the people that I talked to uh, about their experiences were not the people that I anticipated they were just regular people, and they had regular lives and regular jobs and regular families, and they just thought that they had been abducted by aliens or had these encounters
2: and and there was also when i was when I was reading your paper about this uh there's sort of a um, racial disparity uh compared oh. to the population at large
3: yes absolutely um alien abduction at least those abductees who are willing to or experiencers who are willing to come forward are overwhelmingly caucasian um, but again and and it does seem to be and there have been several articles that have been written about like you know why you know why do aliens only abduct white folks and and i think it's a valid question Um, But, you know, culturally, I think there are several explanations for that in terms of the way abduction stories can be used to kind of explore racialized discourse or kind of race more broadly.
2: Uh, Do you have an example? (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So the ones I'm thinking of are all related. Oh, I know. Yes. Okay. I was thinking, I think a lot about gender because a lot of the stuff that I've been doing lately is more feminist stuff. And so I have all kinds of gender examples at the ready in terms of, um, you know, uh, David Jacobs writes about these extra gestational units that are implanted into men so that they can then incubate and kind of uh, bring these alien human hybrid fetuses to life literally. And so kind of I interpret that as somewhat this cooptation of birthing narratives and pregnancy narratives by men, right? Because that's historically a story that they've left entirely out of, that they're not allowed to experience and that they can't have. But through these extra gestational units, they can. In terms of an example for race, I think that just the fact that experiencers talk about a multiplicity of types of aliens and that the aliens have different characteristics. So for example, the little gray aliens that are so popular in pop culture are oftentimes those beings that are um, kind of worker beings. They don't necessarily have personality. They're not particularly developed or advanced in a lot of ways. Technologically, certainly they are, but they're very focused on conducting experiments or, um, or doing that kind of thing. Whereas people also talk about Nordic aliens and Nordic aliens have a tendency to be more human looking and they are, you know, characteristically Caucasian and blonde. Um, and those aliens are the ones that are compassionate. Those aliens are the ones that are kind. So There have been a bunch of different studies, or a couple articles anyway, that talk about gray aliens as being kind of the combination of black and white, right? And so this ambiguous racialized mixture, but also the fact that the advanced aliens are Caucasian. Mm -hmm. I mean, coupled with ancient alien theories, which are inherently racist in some ways, um, you know, race is clearly underneath it all. The fact that any um non westernized non colonized society couldn't have made whatever it is the pyramids and escalines whatever um, and they needed to have help from extraterrestrials, but westernized Caucasian societies didn't is is a little questionable
2: okay, so sort of changing direction a little bit, can you explain the concept of a living myth
3: sure um, so Myth, unlike kind of the pejorative negative connotation, right, that people have, oftentimes when people say, when I say I study myth, people who have had experiences get initially really defensive. They're like, You're not going to tell me this isn't real. You're not going to tell me this is fake and made up. Because when we think about myth, we think about fake stories. But when we talk about myth, academically, right? Intellectually, when we're talking about myth, we're talking about those stories that orient us toward the world, those large framing stories that help us make sense of our personal identities, of our communities, and literally of the universe, right? So living myths can be, um, or myths can be anything. Religions, for example, are myths. And that's not to to be disrespectful to religion, what it means to say is that religions are orienting stories that tell people what their purpose is, what the universe is about, how the universe got here, how societies should be. They give us all of these kind of ways to behave. They tell us what we should do and should not. Um, so, so religions are like living myths. And in my work, I argue are are like myths excuse me and in my work i argue that living myths are those stories that can bubble up in communities or in societies that help do the work that orienting work of myth but aren't codified and written down and aging in a way that makes them irrelevant right one one could argue that the catholic church for example has not kept up with scientific knowledge it has not kept up with feminist positions it has not kept up with kind of cultural uh social justice issues and so for many the the framework of of catholic myths or christian myths might not resonate anymore right they might not feel as though they can be a part of that and and i think that people seek out most people seek out those spaces of belonging and those explanatory ideologies and worldviews that comfort us and inform us. And so I don't think it's a a bad thing. I always feel like defensive when I have to talk about myth. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's just an amazing faculty of humans that we use narrative to make sense of our lives. And these are the stories that we tell.
2: Strange Arrivals will return in a moment.
3: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
2: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists.
0: Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit Lisa.com slash iHeart. That's L E E S A dot com slash Iheart.
2: And then so you took a look at these um, these narratives and kind of identified some emergent stories, right, of, you know, thematically similar stories. hmm Yeah, I did. There are several different
3: themes, and themes have changed over the years, right? In my initial dissertation, I wrote about themes of physical salvation, where the extraterrestrials were here to kind of rescue us, whether that was actual physical rescuing, like taking people off the planet via ships, or collecting our DNA to be able to um, remake or you know keep alive humanity in the future. So those were narratives of physical salvation. There were narratives of hybridization, which are the stories that we hear about a lot in both the uh, abduction community, the UFO community, and also in pop culture. And those are the stories about the alien-human hybrid kind of program, this um, drive to make a master race, and and within narratives of ha- uh, narratives of hybridization, we have this tension between both those stories where the extraterrestrials are—it's kind of the John Mack story of they are spiritually advanced. They are here to help us. They're here to help us evolve. They're here to help us have that ontological shock that will allow us to be integrated into the galactic community Um, versus the stories that are told by people like David Jacobs, where the aliens are not at all good. They are very manipulative. They are very deceitful. Uh, and they are not here for anything other than their own personal use of the human as a resource, right, to to carry out this program. So hybridization has this tension between the two that I find totally fascinating. So um, the third narrative type was betterment of humanity. And in those narratives, the extraterrestrials were coming in order to help humans Evolve themselves. But it's a very, in the, so in those stories, people would be compelled to advance spiritually, engage in, in meditation. They would be compelled to change jobs and do things that were more service oriented, like EMTs or doctors. And what's really interesting, or what distinguishes the betterment of humanity narratives from the cosmic community narratives, is the fact that in betterment of humanity, the individual, is the focus so it's not about humanity it's not about um, the universe it's about the individual's personal journey of betterment um that and it's intimated that that is for the betterment of humanity certainly but in terms of making distinctions it was the fact that it was still focused on the individual whereas the later narrative category cosmic community is much more about the collective whole and the collective move towards, um, you know, integration. Hmm. And then the fourth, uh, thematic thing that I found in my dissertation research was these narratives of cosmic community. And in the narratives of cosmic community, it's really this more full articulation of almost a religious discourse of this idea that the aliens, oftentimes it's the aliens are us and we are them. The DNA is all shared, but it's not necessarily turned on. Also in this category are narratives that talk about kind of the interdimensional or intergalactic nature of these entities um, and whether or not they are us from the future and, uh, and and other things like that. So what I found and the reason why I did that thematic analysis was I found that depending on the motive that people believed, right, the individual experiencer, depending on what they believed, why the aliens were here, the narrative qualities of their stories were similar. So, for example, in stories of um, cosmic community, oftentimes people didn't talk about abduction which I found fascinating. Um, Instead, they would talk about the significance of the experience. They would talk about the consequences of the experience. And so I argue that those stories have kind of been internalized more and are much more a part of the person's identity, whereas stories of like physical salvation and evacuation when the aliens are going to come in a ship and take us away or take our DNA those stories are very granular in their detail. The textual detail is tiny. So they talk about the, the the appearance of the beings and of the ships. They can talk about the smells. Oftentimes people report smelling sulfur. They talk about the attitudes of the beings. They talk about telepathic communication and implants. They talk in great detail about what goes on during the experience, particularly Um, the capture portion of the experience where they're paralyzed in bed or compelled to drive to a remote location, whatever it may be. But those stories are are very much um, specific in their, in their details and people are much more likely to use qualifiers and to say things like, I know this might sound crazy, or I don't know what I think about this, or I'm not sure, or this may have been a dream right? There are a lot more qualifiers in those other narratives as well. And so with the four of them, I argue that they're kind of like Russian nesting dolls in terms of the process of belief. And so as someone comes to believe something, as someone interprets their experiences, right, they're having these anomalous experiences that they don't know what to do with. And then suddenly, extraterrestrials make sense. It resonates as true for them. And so, of course, at first, they're going to say, I'm not sure about this. I don't know. But then as they come into their belief, as they get more affirming um, and and confirming evidence, then they get more and more developed in exactly the significance of that experience.
2: So is your sense that these different themes uh, can like sort of happily coexist?
3: You know, I, I, I do think that they can, they can, well, happily coexist. I don't know about happily coexist. I think that whenever, um, reality is being created, which reality is always being created through language, like that's how we get things that are real, you know, um, but whenever that is happening, there are inconsistent and other narratives that contradict the status quo or the party line right so we have, for example, a history of race in the United States that until recently ignored the you know colonization and and murder of indigenous people and ignored the degree to which um, Capitalist society was based in slavery. So but now we're getting those kind of corrective narratives So I think that with any with any truth with any reality we have this kind of competitive Narrative thing that goes on. So I find it really interesting the tension between People who claim that the extraterrestrials are here to help us and people that claim the extraterrestrials are here to hurt us because they don't have room for each other, right? Because it can't be both. Um, although some people do say that there are certain ones that are here to help us and certain ones that are here to hurt us. But for the most part, these tensions of motive, I think, really speak to uh, kind of the tensions in our culture and tensions in our society.
2: Interesting. What, um, so you use you use Jacobs and you use Mac. Mm-hmm. What, um, Was there a reason why you didn't use Bud Hopkins' research?
3: I did did do, um, well, for my dissertation, I did primarily, I used the narratives that I had collected, right? Mm -hmm. Subsequently, I've looked at, uh, and Hopkins, I think, certainly I've read his work, and he's part of the trajectory of authority and trajectory of narrative. And that's tense too, just in terms of the release of his book versus Whitley Strieber's book, and the timing of all of that, and and the privileging of particular narrative types. So, I think that for me, Mac and Jacobs are the primary kind of touchstones because of their credentials. Quite truthfully, mm-hmm. right? MD, PhD. Um, those credentials are oftentimes highlighted in their work at the top of every. Uh, page of, I think it's secret life. It says David Jacobs, PhD, you know, on the cover of abduction for John Mack, it says John Mack MD. Um, and so I think that the, the pushing of the credentials along with the narrative makes it digestible to general society, not necessarily experiencers, but general society in a different way. One of the things that I find really interesting about abduction discourse and alien experiences is the focus on reproduction. And there is a a book by a woman named Brown, I think, who writes about the kind of correspondence between reproductive rights, politics, and abduction accounts timing. So, for example, Betty and Barney Hill happens right as kind of Roe v. Wade, in vitro fertilization. All of these kind of things are swirling around reproductive politics. And suddenly, not suddenly, but simultaneously, we have aliens who are focused on reproduction and on making this kind of hybrid race. And I think that when I talk about Foucault and biopower... What biopower does is biopower really gives us a way to think about to take a step back from the actual narrative or from the story and try to understand who gets power from this or how is this working for the individual or for society. And so with with Foucault's notions of biopower, what we have is we have two poles. And on the one pole we have the individual and on the other pole we have society. And Foucault argues that there are mechanisms that constrain and kind of limit both the individual and society. And um, alien abduction discourse kind of really demonstrates that in the sense that it's highly focused on the individual and the individual's reproduction and and what the individual gives and what the individual can do. And so you can talk about that, right? So the individual can talk about the fact that they um, have gestated several of these pregnancies, they've had these pregnancies taken, and then they can have ownership over all of that trauma, right? Because the the rhetoric of trauma is huge. And so then those feelings are then given an outlet. Similarly, when we think about kind of the, the whole body politic, we also have kind of rules that are being made around the future of the species so to speak in the sense that the aliens are targeting particular types of people or types of characteristics that are deemed desirable so most notably oftentimes when people claim that they've been they've had these experiences when i ask them why they're chosen Oftentimes, people will say that they're chosen because they have the ability to be more intuitive, to be more spiritual, to rely less on the rational world, to distance themselves from capitalist, consumer society, whatever the case may be. And so, what we really see in there is a critique of enlightened rationalism and this idea that spirituality, intuition, individual experience are all valid. Right. They're all important ways of knowing and that the scientific method should not be the only privileged way of knowing. And that particular tension is most clearly shown when people will say to me, I don't care that, you know, people try to refute it. I know what happened to me. Mm -hmm. Right. So the primacy of that experience.
2: Interesting. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you think is important for people to understand?
3: What I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about the fact that I do believe that the people with whom I corresponded and and interviewed and everything else, I do believe that these people believe what has happened to them. Right. And I believe that they believe that it's true. Um, And so I guess what i hope is that researchers both the researchers of all types um, are able to kind of help people find ways to talk about these stories and talk about the larger cultural reflections kenneth burke writes that language selects reflex and deflects reality and i absolutely believe that is true right so so abduction discourse, to some degree, selects particular aspects of reality and magnifies it, basically, for us to see. And so the focus on reproduction, the, the focus or the, the exclusion of racial diversity, all of these things I think are indicative of kind of our current political, cultural times.
2: Next week, on the final bonus episode of this season of Strange Arrivals, I talk with documentary filmmaker Carol Rainey, Bud Hopkins' ex wife and former research partner. She talked to me about her experience in the midst of the abduction heyday of the 1990s and early 2000s.
3: Bud and Dave regarded their findings as they interpreted them as
1: showing that if if the aliens were not here to harm us and we didn't know maybe
0: they were that they certainly weren't here to do us any good that they used us basically as research subjects they had no compunction about coming into our bedrooms at night or dipping into our cars
3: or wherever we happened to be and vacuum us up and
0: either experiment with eggs and sperm you know, none of this makes sense scientifically over, you know, decades and decades.
1: Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rikiki.
2: Barney Hill was portrayed by Jason Williams.
1: Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut, John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at Grimandmile.com.
2: Com.